You may have heard this story before, um, but there's a, there's a story about an old preacher, and uh, he was preaching, got up one Sunday morning, and he preached his message, and, you know, as every good, you know, country church, he, at the end of the service, he, he gets down, and he walks to the back of the auditorium, and he stands there, and, you know, everybody files by, you know, and thank you, preacher, good job, preacher, amen, you know, appreciate it, you know, everything happened, you know, kind of like clockwork, kind of like normal, um, and then next Sunday, he got up and, and uh, got into the pulpit, and he, and he preached the same message. And, and this time we went back to the back and, and people were filing by. Not, not quite as many people were saying thank you and, and you know, congratulations and I, I really appreciate it. Got a few, you know, uh, mostly from people that weren't there the week before. And, uh, and so, every, you know, everything was going okay. He gets up the next week and he preaches the same message. And, and this time, like, nobody's saying anything. It's just a handshake on the way through the door, maybe a little bit of grumbling, you know, I just feel like I've heard this before. And until you get, you know, the last person in line, you know, one of the deacons, you know, he comes up and he says, Pastor, when are you going to preach something new? And the preacher said what? Anybody know? I'll stop preaching it when you start living it, right? I'll stop preaching it when you stop, start living it. Well, I don't know too many preachers who would really uh, enjoy preaching the same message week after week after week. In fact, most of the time when we, when we come to a passage, uh, we want to we bring something fresh, right? Well, we want to bring something new. We, wanna, we like digging in and finding some nugget maybe that, uh, that we haven't heard preached before or haven't heard preached very much. And, and we like to be able to, to maybe share something new with the, with the congregation because that's more fun, really, than sharing something that everybody knows, right? Um, but as I was... It was, it was, I had some coffee this morning, and it was very hot, and my tongue's a little dead. So I'm going to trip over my words a lot this morning. So, you know, we don't like, we, don't, we like to preach new things. We like to preach fresh things because it's, it, makes, it makes study more interesting, you know. But this morning, I'm not going to be delving into a bunch of Hebrew. Uh, we've done a little bit of that so far. I'm not going to be sharing some amazing new nugget that, that you probably haven't seen before. This morning, I'm going to take just four very simple truths, um, looking at what we've already looked at in Genesis 7 and Genesis 8. And, and you might look at these and say, well, those are really general truths. Those are pretty, I mean, did you even study this week? I mean, I could have kind of figured that out on my own, right? I, I've probably heard these things a thousand times, and, and I really struggled with going this direction because... These are truths that we all know, and these are truths that we've heard many, many times. But for some reason, as I went through this passage over and over again, I just I couldn't get away from these concepts. I couldn't get away from these thoughts. And, and as you know, we've talked about, you know, Genesis is, is much more of a narrative than we're used to, right? A lot of the times we're in, we're in the New Testament, usually uh, in one of Paul's books. You know, we did John, we did Ephesians, um, then we went to Genesis, right? I feel like we did something else there. I forget. That's not good. Um, but, you know, it's a little bit easier to preach from the New Testament because Paul's got doctrine and then he's got application, right? It's, it's easier. It's almost lazy for us sometimes as preachers because Paul's preaching it for us many times. But you come to these Old Testament books and, and especially Genesis, there's a lot of, there's a lot of narrative. And, and sometimes it's hard to get a hold of 
what can I learn from this? What, is, what am I going to benefit from this passage? And, and I really appreciate it. I think it was a, a week ago or a couple weeks ago, uh, Eric reminding us that Scripture is not about us. Scripture is not about the people in Scripture, except for one. And who is that? God. Scripture is about God. And so as we come to these passages and these narratives, especially in this one, I mean, even if you wanted to pull some characteristics about Noah, I don't, I don't know that you could necessarily from this passage very much. Uh, we, might, we might point to one. Uh, but it's, it's hard sometimes to kind of get, a, get an idea of what God's trying to communicate. And I think when we look at it from the perspective of who is God and what is he revealing about himself, I feel like the, the points that we have this morning are, are what he has for us. And so I have three, four lessons this morning that I want to pull uh, from chapter 7. We'll just kind of rehearse a little bit of chapter 7 and then chapter 8. Um, the title of my message this morning is The God of the Storm. The God of the Storm. Of course, the context of this storm is what? What's going on? What? The flood, right? Why did God send the flood? To wipe out man, right? The first lesson that I want to learn or be reminded of probably this morning is when God brings the storm, it is for our good. It is for our good. And you say, wait a minute. You just said that the storm came to wipe out all of mankind, right? How was that for our good? What was happening? What was happening? Come on, think back to chapter 6. I know. We've got to think back a little bit. What was happening in chapter 6? Yeah, man's thoughts were evil continually. And it's interesting, I'm not going to go into it, but you know, some of the definitions and things that we talked about way back then in chapter 6, if you read in chapter 7, what did it say they were doing? They were murdering, right? I mean, it was just a lifestyle of murder and death and sin and wickedness right? And, and God said, enough is enough. There, there's a limit. This, this is as far as it goes. And so he says, I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to bring a storm, except for he saved eight people. Who are they? Noah, his wife, his three sons, and his son's wives. He says, I'm going to wipe everything from off the face of the earth. Every man, every beast, every creeping thing, they're all going to be destroyed, except for, Adam, except for Noah and his family and the animals that are on the ark. And so you look at this and you say, well, God has a purpose. God is doing it for our good. And, and again, you know, you pull this, you pull this kind of really uh, general thought out of this passage, David, right? You pull this really general thought out. And, and so as I was going through this, I started just kind of thinking, well, is my, is my point valid, right? Is my point valid? I think most of us would say, yeah, it's a valid point, but, you know, does it really fit with Genesis? <laughs> He's bringing it for a purpose. He's bringing it for our good. Um, as I was thinking about this, I just started thinking through, first my mind went to Hebrews 11 uh, that Andy men uh, mentioned earlier, talking about the hall of faith. And then I, I just started thinking through the history 
of the Bible, of all the people who had done great things for God. And, and I just thought about what, what happened after God called them to do these great things. And I just thought about people like Abraham. We're going to get to him pretty shortly here. Abraham. God gives him this great promise, this covenant, and yet after his son is born, what does he ask him to do? To sacrifice him. You think, you think Abraham struggled with that a little bit? If you're a father in here this morning, you know he did. Scripture doesn't tell us that he wavered, but I'm sure he had feelings about what was going on. He definitely had faith. Joseph, God gave him these dreams, right? You're going you're gonna to be great. These, these, these brothers of yours, even your parents are going to bow down. They're going to worship you. And what happens to him? He's thrown into a pit. He's sold as a slave. Gets lied about, put in prison. Sits there after he helps out the butler for two more years. Sounds like a storm to me. Gideon. An angel comes to visit him and says, this is what God wants you to do. I want you to raise an army, right? And of course, we have the whole issue with the fleece. But he says, I want you to raise an army. And Gideon does, right? He raises an army. And then what does God say to him? We're going to cut that down a little bit. All these thousands of people you're going to go to war with, let's, you got too many people. We're going to cut that down. David, God's anointed king of Israel, spent years running for his life from Saul. Sound like a storm? Hosea. Well, that's a name we don't hear a lot. Hosea. What was he called to do? Anybody remember? Marry a prostitute. And what did she do? She left him. Peter and James were in prison for preaching the gospel. They suffered beatings. Paul was beaten and left for dead. He was imprisoned multiple times. He was shipwrecked twice. Do you see a pattern? When God calls us to do something, he often brings us to him. But you know what? The storm is for our good. Just as the storm that is coming here in Genesis um, is coming to, to, in essence, restart humanity on a new footing. It's going to, to wipe out everything. It's going to, if you talk to a lot of the creation uh, experts, it's going to revamp the world even just because of the, the colossal magnitude of the flood. Um, and there's lots of things going on here to kind of refresh and renew and restart, in a sense, his creation. And, you know, we're promised that these storms are going to come. We're promised that these storms are going to come, whether it's persecution, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13 says, Indeed, Paul's writing, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in life in Christ Jesus will what? Will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, we're going to suffer a storm of persecution if we're living the way that God wants us to. 
He's going to allow that storm to come into our life. But not only is it, is it persecution, sometimes it's just storms and trials that are there to test us. What does James 1 tell us? James 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Various kinds of trials. Lots of different types of trials. However, we must understand that God does not bring the storm for no reason. He brings the storm for a purpose. It is for our good. The storm was sent to wipe out man who had corrupted the earth, all but eight, and the animals that joined them in the ark. What about those other people we talked about? What about Abraham? What did the storm do in his life? The storm provided or proved that his faith in God was real. The storm proved that his faith in God is real. Joseph's storm prepared a way for the salvation of the children of Israel from famine. Gideon's storm showed the people of Israel that God is the one who fights for them in his might and not theirs. David's storm made him utterly dependent on God for his survival. Hosea's storm proved as an example and a picture to Israel of their sin against God. Peter and James were two of the few in the beginning who turned the world upside down for Christ. Paul became one of the greatest examples of Christ-likeness that we have, and he even penned half the New Testament. Do you think the storms were worth it? Every storm that God brings in our life is for a purpose. And I don't know this morning, uh, if you're in the middle of a storm, some of you I do, I don't know what storm you're going through necessarily. I don't know. Maybe you've just come through a storm. Maybe, maybe you haven't had a storm in a while, but maybe it's, it's coming. It's going to come. Because James 1 tells us, and it goes on to say, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is reminding us that as these storms come into our life, they're designed for a purpose. They're designed to strengthen our faith. They're designed to strengthen our steadfastness. They are for our good. But you know, sometimes when we're going through the storm, it's hard for us to see what God's doing. It's easy for us oftentimes to get caught up in our circumstances, to get, to get caught up in, the, in the, the daily struggle of getting through the storm. It's easy for us to even at times begin to think that God maybe forgot us. And sometimes we may cry out to him even with those words, where are you? Do you even know what's going on in my life? When I was a young teenager, my family and I took a trip to Disney World in Florida. And uh, many of you probably know, I think I've said it before, my, my dad is a Disney fanatic. Um, he and his sister actually are going on a trip, just the two of them, to Disney World. Um, they're a little weird, all right? And uh, supposedly they're working on his book, but they're going to Disney World too. And... Uh, <laughs> I'll have to cut that out so he doesn't hear it if he listens. Um, but anyway, he's a Disney fanatic. So we, went, we were at Disney World, and, and, uh, and we went to one of those 3D movies. And my brother and I, my brother's two years younger than me, 
And so we're, we're coming out, and of course, if you've ever been to any of those things, you know there's probably about 3,000 people coming out of this uh, stadium. And we're coming out, and we're taking the 3D glasses, putting them in the thing. We kind of walk out into the main courtyard area, and my brother and I uh, turn around, and we don't see our parents. And we're like, okay, well, they're probably just caught up, you know, no big deal. So we wait there for a minute and just, you know, watching, looking, trying to see. There's only eight doors. I mean, where are they going to come out of? And, and couldn't find them anywhere. And, uh, and so about the time that we started to go back to try to figure out where our parents were, what happened? My dad pops out from behind the pillar. Now, he's, he can be kind of a punk sometimes. Um, <laughs> My, my family knows this. Uh, and, and I don't know if he was doing this to try to teach us a lesson or just because he thought it would be funny. Um, I tend to, I tend to, to lean on the ladder. Uh, and if you want to know, ask me why I am mortally afraid of alligators later. All right. So I tend to lean on the ladder that he's probably doing this not to teach us a lesson because we didn't go that far. He's just, you know, he's just trying to make us afraid. He's trying to make us uh, scared, spooked, wondering where our family is. Did they, did they walk off without us? Did they forget us? And, and I think a lot of times we're going through the storms of life, we can kind of get that same feeling, right? God, God I, was, I was doing what you wanted me to do, right? I was, I was following the path. You know, I put my glasses in the box and I walked out. You know, where, where are you? Where are you? I'm following what you've asked me to do. Where are you? It's interesting how this passage begins in chapter 8. What does it say? It says, but God remembered Noah. Did God forget Noah? No, this isn't, this isn't a God forgot him and, oh yeah, oh yeah, there's that Noah guy. I forgot about that. Whew. That's not the kind of remember. This is just a remember of, hey, I know that you're there and I've not forgotten you. I know that you're there, and I've not forgotten you. God remembered Noah. It's interesting, it says, that he didn't just remember Noah, but he remembered all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. This was God's plan. He was aware of where they were, but can you imagine being them? You know, there's, as far as we can tell, there's no communication between God and Noah from the time God says, go into the ark, and the time he says, come out of the ark, right? It's like radio silence between both of those two events. And if you look down, how long is that time? Just over a year. And so for a year, there's nothing from God. And can you imagine being on that ark in those first 40 days? You know, all of a sudden you're on, you're on this solid wooden structure and all of a sudden it moves. Whoa. I mean, I've been on boats. Can you imagine? I've been on a cruise ship even. And, and those are kind of hard to feel, but can you imagine that first time feeling that boat lift up? I don't know about you, but I, I might be a little afraid. My wife would probably puke. Um, that's, you know, I, I don't know what was going on in the ark. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I would, I would think there, there might have been a lot of white knuckles hanging on to things, wondering if this... Did we build this right? <laughs> Is this thing going to last? Um, and then how long? How long was it floating? Six months. 
six months. Now, if you like the boat, that's great. But do you like being on a boat for six months? Straight? Trying to sleep on it? How, how many have slept on a boat? Anybody? Okay. How many have slept on a boat that you could feel it rocking? Okay. Good for you. <laughs> you, can, you can relate to Noah. <laughs> I can't. I wouldn't be caught dead on a boat asleep. You know, Jonah is not my uh, biblical example. I can't do that. But here, we, here we, have the, we have this massive storm. Again, think about what's happening. In chapter 7, it tells us that the, the uh, springs in the deep broke open, right? We've got cataclysmic events happening here with all this water. I, can't, I, I just can't imagine that the ark was just... I don't think that's what it was. I think it was a little bit more substantial what Noah and his family and the animals were going through. And I can certainly imagine probably many times them thinking, well, it's been three months. You, you, you think God knows we're here? Well, it's, it's been six months. He, he, knows, he knows we're still in here, right? Yeah. Nine months. As time just passes, it's easy to understand maybe why God uses this, this phrase that God remembered Noah. Have you ever felt like God has forgotten you? Maybe you have dealt with or are dealing with a, a physical problem. Maybe you've dealt with it for weeks, months, years, decades with no relief. You ever feel like God has forgotten you? Maybe you've even prayed that he would take it away and he hasn't. Maybe you're stuck in some other life circumstance with a job or or with a house, or, or any of these other things in our lives that, that we can look at as storms. And it doesn't seem like there's any physical way of getting out of it. It's going to take a miracle. It's going to be something supernatural to get you out of whatever this storm is. And you've prayed about it, and you've sought God's face, and you're trying to do what is right, but it just seems like God's forgotten you. Maybe you're here this morning, and it's not a physical thing. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're struggling with a particular sin. And you keep fighting and you keep working and you keep losing. And you keep wondering, when am I going to win? God, have you forgotten me? I'm trying. Have you forgotten me? God did not forget Noah in the midst of arguably the greatest storm in human history, God did not forget him. And no matter what storm you're going through this morning, whatever, no matter what storm you've been through, no matter what's coming up ahead, God will not forget you. He has not forgotten you. When God brings a storm, he will not forget us. Lesson number three, when God brings a storm, it ends on his timetable. When God brings a storm, it ends on his timetable. Again, these are, these are not new truths. My wife and I um, often have very different concepts of timetables. Um, we, we often will, will look at a task, and, and she may think it should be done at a certain time, and I may think, you know, well, maybe a different time is acceptable. 
Um, sometimes these, these differences of, of times come to a head and, and we have what's called an intervention or Sarah telling me that I'm wrong. And usually she's right. But men, are you familiar with this concept? You know, uh, your wife asks you, hey, can you, can you take out the garbage? We'll use the, the, we'll use the old garbage analogy, right? Can you take out the garbage? Yes, absolutely, I will take out the garbage. And, um, and you know, I'm thinking, I'm sitting on the couch, right? Maybe it's the Chiefs game, right, next week. Maybe it's the Chiefs game, I'm, I'm sitting on the couch, and, uh, and I'm thinking, well, you know, there's going to be a commercial soon. You know, we're under eight minutes, there's going to be a commercial soon. So, you know, we'll just, I'll, just, I'll do it when the commercial comes, right? Or maybe it has nothing to do with TV. Maybe it's just, you know, I'm busy doing something. And quite frankly, I'm not even in the kitchen right now. But I know I'm going to be in the kitchen eventually. So I'll just take care of it when I get into the kitchen. Because it makes more sense to do something when you're there instead of take the extra time to walk 20 feet, right? I mean, that makes more sense, you know. And, and that's my idea of a, of a timeline to get the trash taken out. What's her idea of the timeline to get the trash taken out? Now, right? Right now. I asked you to do it now. Now is when you should do it. And, uh, and sometimes that leads to a, a good spiritual discussion. Um, but the same thing's true about us and God, is it not? Especially when we're going through these storms of life, especially when we're going through these struggles and we're wondering, you know, not only, oh God, are you, are you there? Are you listening? Are you, do, you, do you remember me? Have you forgotten me? And not only that, but a lot of times we're like, when is this going to be over? When is this going to be done? I feel, I feel like I've put my time in, Lord. I feel like I've gotten everything that I need to learn from this. You know, you said it was for a purpose. I figured something out that's spiritual. Let's be done. All right? The storm's for the purpose. I get it. I know you're with me. I know that, you're, that you've not forgotten me, but, you know, I, I don't think I can take this any longer. And our time frame, I found pretty much almost never is the same time frame as God's. And, and I don't want to necessarily put, uh, put words into this passage that are not there. Um, but I do think it's interesting when you go through, you look at the timeline that's given to us in this passage, kind of what happens as we, as we draw near the end, right? Let's look at it. We've got 40 days and 40 nights. We see the rain. We've got uh, the waters prevailing on the earth for 150 days. Excuse me. Then after the fountains were closed and the rain was restrained, excuse me, um, we see another 150 days. And the ark finds a landing place in the mountains of Ararat. Now we're six months in, right? Six months in. This is a 30-day count, 30-day month, 30 month back then. All right, so six months in from the second month to the seventh month. And it's nice because it gives us the months too, right? So we're in the seventh month. That's six months in, or five months in, sorry. And then it says that the waters were continuing to go down until when? Till the 10th month. All right? So we're seeing progress, but now we're in the 10th month when the tops of the mountains could be seen. And it's after that that Noah waits how much longer? 40 more days, right? 40 more days. Now, Scripture does not tell us that Noah's getting Nancy, but based on what happens, I get the feeling that Noah's probably getting Nancy. Because did God tell Noah to send out the raven? 
No, he didn't. Noah just did that on his own. Because if you think about it, how they, they've been on solid footing ever since the seventh month, right? So they've had three months now where they're not rocking back and forth. You know, I'm sure they've got things to do. They've got plenty of animals to take care of. You know, they're probably busy, but, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not a fan of farms, especially barns where, where smell is enclosed. Not my cup of tea, right? And we're talking all the animals in this ark. And I don't know about you, but I love my family, but sometimes they get on my nerves because we're humans, right? And Noah was a righteous man, but it didn't say the rest of his family was righteous, <laughs> right? I'm sure there may have been some conflict in there in a year, maybe, you know, well, I'm going to the corner of the ark, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how that works. It's, it's big, but it's not that big. And, uh, and so I can, I can assume that, that they're probably getting anxious to get out. And there's nothing in this passage that tells us that God said to Noah, you know, you need to send something out to see if the ground's okay. But that's what he does, right? He sends out the raven to see if there's any, any dry land. And then the raven doesn't come back. And so what does he do then? He sends out the dove, right? And the dove comes back. And he's like, well, that didn't work out. So then he waits another week, you know. It's interesting. Why did he wait a week? Any idea? I don't know either. This is just an arbitrary time that Noah has picked to wait. So he waits a week and he sends the dove out again. This time it comes back with what? An olive branch, right? It comes back with a sign of life. And so he waits another week. And he sends a dove out, and it doesn't come back. Have you ever wondered what was going through the, the dove's mate's mind? I mean, he took my dove, and now it's gone. I don't know. It's just, I think of weird things like that. But, uh, but so this dove is gone. And, and so he's, he is assuming then that the earth is dried up. And so all this time, we see what I think is kind of Noah being a little anxious. He looks out, and he sees... Uh, the earth is dry, and it says that he, he removed the canopy, right? He removed some sort of structure on the top, and, uh, and he's preparing, right? He's preparing to leave. He's preparing, no doubt, probably getting the animals ready. He's getting ready to get out of the ark. But he doesn't leave. Why didn't he leave? He knew there was dry ground. He could see that there was dry ground. Why didn't he leave? Because God hadn't said to. Even though he was anxious, probably, even though he's ready to go, he understood that it's in God's timing. God had not said to leave. He knew that God's timing would be perfect. God has been reshaping and reforming the earth he has had this year to destroy everything and to rebuild everything. And now at the time that he tells Noah and the animals to come out of the ark, the earth is ripe and ready to sustain life. What if Noah had left the ark early? Would the world have been ready? 
Would the world have been ready for the animals? Would the world have been ready for him and his family? No doubt they probably still had some food reserves. Um, in fact, they, may, they maybe even used those for months or even a year. I don't know. I mean, they had, Eric talked about it, they had a long time to, to harvest grain. You think about Joseph, he harvested grain for seven years and fed nations, right? So, of course, that was nations gathering too. But, uh, you know, they, they, had, they had probably plenty of food on the ark. But the land was not ready. It took the dove two tries just to find a branch that showed signs of life. God was working and, and, and moving and molding the earth to be able to sustain life again. And when it was the perfect time for that to happen, he said, Noah, you and your family and the animals, leave the ark. Leave the ark, and specifically animals, go forth and multiply. See, God has a perfect time to end the storm. He had a perfect time to end the storm for Noah, and he has a perfect time to end the storm for us. And even though his timeline may not match our timeline, it is perfect because it will do exactly what he is desiring it to do. Remember that first point? It has a purpose. It's for our good. He's not forgotten us, and his timing is perfect. It will end when he wants it to end. But one final lesson this morning. As we look at the end of this passage in Noah, lesson number four, when God brings a storm, it is for his glory. We already said it's for our good. And we just sang that this morning, did we not? That, that bridge in, in, in uh, sovereign over us, right? It says, even when the enemy means... Even when the enemy, how's the word to go? Means it for evil, right? You mean it for our good, right? You mean it for our good and what? And for your glory. And we see that in how Noah responds. It's interesting. Let's look at it again. It says in verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Have you ever noticed that before? It doesn't say that Noah just offered a burnt offering, right? It doesn't say that Noah offered a few burnt offerings. What does it say? He took some of every clean bird and animal and offered it to God. You think Noah understood what God was looking for? Noah understood that everything that God had done Yes, even in preserving him and his family and the animals, all of that was not just for them, but it was to show forth his glory. And Noah, at the end of all of this storm, comes to God and he offers that praise and that worship back to him through sacrifice. Do we do that? When we come through the storms of life, do we offer praise and worship and glory to God for what he's done? Or are we just cantankerous and bitter because it took too long? How do we respond to the storms of life? How do we respond to the God of the storm? 
Noah responded in worship and adoration and gratitude. Is that the way that we respond? Because that's what God desires. He desires to be glorified when the storm is over. He desires to be glorified while we're in the storm. But especially when the storm is complete. And what does it say about this offering? It says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. He responds in kind. And we're going to see in chapter 9 that these are not just his internal thoughts, but he then is going to proclaim a covenant. And I'll let Andy deal with that next week. But he's going to proclaim a covenant with all of creation in response to this sacrifice of gratitude? Is that how we approach the storms of life? That's what God desires. When He brings a storm, it is for our good. When He brings a storm, He's not forgotten us. It's for a purpose. When He brings a storm, it will end in His time frame. But when He brings a storm, it's so that He will be glorified in what He has done in our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the storms that You bring. And Lord, we look at our lives and we look at some people, it seems like they have harder storms than others. Sometimes it seems like uh, some people have more storms than others. But Lord, we, we lean on James 1, understand that You are doing those for a purpose. You are bringing those storms into our life to increase our faith. You're doing that to make us more like Christ. And I pray that, uh, that you would be with us this morning as we uh, discuss the storms of life, those that have happened in the past, maybe even storms that we're going through now, that, that you would be glorified because of what you are doing, that you would be worshipped because of what you have done. I pray that we would not forget that you are the God of the storm, not just the storm of judgment, not just the storm of, of uh, retribution for our sin, but you are the God of the storm that changes us into the image of Christ. And we pray that you would be doing that work. I pray that you would be with our discussion time this morning, that it would be um, a time that, that is open and sharing, that you would work in our lives through one another's testimonies. And we'll give you the praise and glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.